Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Did you get that? That's John 5, 24. At the moment that you look up to Christ to receive you, you receive salvation, he gives it. It is a gift. Well, that is what we want to consider tonight. And namely, is it possible to have assurance and... I'm really dealing with, um, as I've stated in the sermon title, the overcoming doubts regarding one's salvation. This is a series on overcoming. Last week was overcoming regrets. What are we as Christians? We have overcome. And when we came to Christ, we overcame the penalty of sin. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. We are overcoming we're overcoming as God grants the grace for us to deal with uh, the myriad of issues, sins, struggles, temptations. There, we, God gives us the grace to overcome those. And we will overcome. One day we'll be outside of the very presence of sin. What a glad day that will be. Standing before the Lord. I don't know what that moment of realization will completely be like. But it's got to be wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And whatever infirmities, impairments, whatever, and the greatest impairment of all, sin, and that suddenly we stand in the presence of Christ, what a wonderful time that will be. But now we're thinking about that we are overcoming. That's a process. Overcoming doubts about one's salvation. I was converted in 1956. I have very clear memories of that time of life and the preaching to which I was exposed, the gospel message and teachers around me. And it was immediately, it was part of that moment of conversion and the aftermath of teaching that salvation is a gift. It's a gift from God. And you can have assurance from the moment you receive Christ that you have received that gift. But over the last, wow, I guess it would be 56, coming up on 60 years now as an observer, that uh, there has come about some shifts in the way in which assurance of salvation is being emphasized and being taught. These are not new. They have always been latent in church history. Church history, no matter where you go, you can find things, the seed form of current issues somewhere back there. But uh, for our experience in the last 60 years, there has, been, there has been a challenge to the view that uh, you can have assurance the moment that you come to Christ. But lest I go forward and assume something, could I just pause and just be something of an evangelist for you this moment? Do you know at this moment, as I put it, the blurb in the bulletin, it's not 9 o'clock, that if you knew that you were going to die tonight at 9 o'clock, do you know that when you died that you would go immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ to be absent in the bodies to be present in the Lord? Do you know that? Do you find yourself maybe just, I don't know, Oh, I was really a stinker this afternoon um, or this past week or, oh, there was was a time in my life when it really, really got bad. So I just don't know. Well, let me come back to the question so that lest I forget to make it absolutely clear. You can know now, right at this moment, That Jesus Christ is your Savior from sin. You have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. What do you do? You look up to Christ for the gift to receive it. Lord, I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to gain your merit, to stand in your presence. And Lord, in the condition I'm in, I need your salvation. Thank you for dying in my place and taking the judgment that I deserve as a lost sinner. Jesus Christ was punished in my place and was raised the third day 
as proof of the realness and the validity of that fact that he can be my Savior. And I now receive you by faith alone, Lord, just trusting you and receive that gift of eternal life. You have that opportunity. I will proceed. Now, you may need to ruminate on that. Maybe, maybe your mind will just go there and consider that for this. I would consider that to be a beneficial time if this sets you off thinking and praying and struggling. I want to ask some questions now with that in mind with regard to assurance. How can a believer have assurance of salvation? Is it possible for one to, better get this on. I'm clicking, guys, but nothing's happening. Uh, okay, I'll keep talking. And that how can a believer have assurance of salvation? Is it possible to know one will go to heaven before death? I mean, do you have to wait to death to know? Or a, or a minute before death? Thank you. Yeah. Can a saved person ever be lost? Must the Christian persevere in believing in order to be finally saved? Is it enduring to the end? Is that what saves me? Thirdly, is doubt about one's salvation a healthy thing? I actually read. <laughs> this, oh, when I read this, I just get astounded. And I, there's, more, there's more here than I can unload on you tonight. But I read some of the sources that where, uh, from some people that you would think would really be clear, ought to be clear on this that actually doubt is looked upon as kind of a virtue. Doubt about your salvation. You will see when I get through that that's not where I am. Either chronic doubt or periodic doubts. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't an issue with doubt. That's, the, that's what we're going after tonight, overcoming doubts about one's salvation. And then I'll add a, a, a fourth statement. It's not in the notes, but... I want to make a statement with regard to the Christian doctrine of assurance of salvation. This is not a study on eternal security. That eternal security is the, tr the truth that when you come to Christ and receive the gift of forgiveness of sin, eternal life, you're secure. I'm not afraid to use the word secure. That seems to have gotten, some have gotten very queasy about using the word security. Um, why, I don't know. I, well, I do know that there is, that we think that if we don't keep people just a little bit on the edge, that they might run off the reservation and live like, you know what. But is that the truth that says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who? What? Romans 8 and 35 through 39. All right. But as I've said, I've noticed a shift in the way the doctrine of assurance of salvation has taken place in the last 50, 60 years. And there's been slowly a redefining of this truth of assurance. All right, let's proceed. Now, I'm going to go along at uh, um, what I'm hoping will be a pretty steady, fast pace. And if you have questions and such, this is the place to ask them. So let's try to get there and do that. First of all, let's uh, introduce ourselves to the various views are, that are held among Christians on the assurance of believers' salvation. What um, this, I'm, I'm having to condense the field, uh, and I can't get into the nuanced views within, especially number one, option one, namely that assurance of salvation is conditional based on observation of fruit in the professing Christian's life. A person cannot know, according to this view, that a person cannot know that he or she is saved on the day they put their trust in Christ. That assurance of salvation, according to this view, can only exist in a person's life after a period of time has passed, and he's passed and he's reached certain milestones of spiritual achievement. 
A person cannot know that he's saved on the day he puts his trust in Christ. So the belief is that assurance of salvation rests upon observation or perception of the presence of the fruit of the Spirit. So there comes then, in this view, this a, a subjective assessment of the quality of faith. And with that, an equally subjective evaluation of visible fruits. There are those who say that that is what assurance rests upon, therefore said to be conditional. Sometimes, and I'm, I want to be fair because there are, as I said, there are variations within this first viewpoint, but sometimes this is referred to as perseverance of the saints. This is the P in tulip for those who understand Calvinism's uh, presentation of the doctrines of grace. Now, there are different kinds of Calvinists, and I'm not going to chase those uh, inflections, but there are some who think that, per, who teach that perseverance means that. Well, he who endures to the end shall be saved. So you've got to keep on believing. Uh, Some view fruit as the evidence of justification. That, yes, there is a genuine openness and a disposition of trust that is created in regeneration. And so there would then be a consequence that would be fruit. That's true. And I'm not questioning that, that somewhere, somehow, sometime, there's going to be some evidence because there is this new desire, a new disposition, and so something is going to happen. But others have taken it to another level. Namely, they say that perseverance is virtually a condition of salvation and not just the evidence of it. Uh, here is one writer that, um, let's see if I put, if I've got the, uh, yes, here, here's the quote. That it is necessary, and I, this dear man, I'm, when I put a name up like this, you know, I, I left out some names, and I said, so I don't want to get people all worked up about names, and this is not a beauty contest as to what theologian, you know, you've liked and helped. James Boyce has been a dear servant of God, and I've profited from his ministry and his books. And so when I, when I put something up like this, it's not that, you know, it's not a dark game. I'm not after him. But nevertheless, he's kind of been a point man on this uh, view. He's with the Lord now. And that is a relatively young man, as I see now. He was only 64, and, um, but a faithful servant. But he said, it is necessary that we do these good. That should be works there. I noticed there's a typo. It says words. Put a K instead of a D. That it is necessary that we do these good works as Christians in all ages have. For unless we do, we have no assurance that we are really Christ followers. Another expression of this view is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it reads as follows, that assurance of grace and salvation, not being of the essence of faith, true believer, the true believer must wait long before they obtain it. I want to come back to that. They must wait long. I want to come back to that point in a moment. Another, uh, let's see, did I put up this next uh, quote? It may be just in my notes and not in yours. No, that's right. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to go. I'm trying to get back. Um, okay, I want. I want to add a couple here at this point. If you're taking notes, Walter Chantry says, "Quote: Only when God is loved supremely and the spirit of the law kept has a man any reason to believe that he has been uh, been born of God." And let me give you another. I won't quote this source because it, the person uh, really respect and it's, uh, it will create a conversation we can have after we finish, but I just will not keep the, put the name in. 
Our assurance does not lie in looking back to a momentary decision we made for Christ, but in looking forward to the certainty of preserving grace based on the all-sufficient atonement of his son's death. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I see that again. What do you mean a decision? You mean when I believed on Christ that I have to then wait to get final assurance? He says further, perseverance in faith in future grace brings about the assurance of provenness. There are those who would teach this view, option one, that your uh, persevering to the end is the condition and observing fruit in the life is the basis for assurance. Some base their arguments on the present tense. Um, and I, I will mention a name here in a very good, well, in many ways it's a good theology book. There are some, what I consider to be some, certainly differences and I would say weaknesses, is Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and he makes this argument. And I, it really baffles me, being the Greek scholar that he is, that he would say that the present tense, like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, believing, that uses the present tense of the Greek to make assurance rest upon that, that is, you believe, but you continue to believe. And so your continuation in believing is that which is your provenness of or getting assurance along the line. That just doesn't hold up in the grammar. I mean, look at the play. I could take you to places like in Romans 4, 3, in Galatians chapter 3, where Abraham said he believed God. And it's an aorist tense. You, it's just it's trying to make a present tense walk on legs that it was not designed to make to walk upon. And you can even find a present tense used in places where it's clearly it's, a, it's, it's referring to an act, a moment, a point in time. But I say that so that if you read on this and you go out into a wider um, experience and trying to understand these views, you wouldn't be surprised by that. Okay, uh, do we have that one? All right, we can come back with questions later if you wish, but let's now go to this option two. That assurance of salvation is unconditional based on the promises of God's word. Assurance based on the promise of Christ. That faith itself consists in assurance. It is the essence of faith. What do you do in faith? You receive the gift of God, eternal life and forgiveness of sin. Let me read to you none other than what Martin Luther himself said on this, and I think he got it right. He says, saving faith is, I believe I have this, yeah, it's in your notes, Saving faith is the sort of faith that does not look at its own works, nor its strength and worthiness, noting that what sort of quality or new created or infused virtue it may be, but faith goes out of itself, clings to Christ, and embraces him as its own possession. Faith is certain that it is loved by God for his sake. Martin Luther. Now, there is a very uh, intriguing historical uh, story here in church history as to what Augustine believed. Augustine did not believe that you could have assurance. And Augustine's theology, he wrote so voluminously. I mean, he had an incredible intellect, and he wrote so much that you could really find and pick your own doctrine because you could find internal contradictions. And he did not believe that you could do so, that you could have assurance. And there's an interesting sequence here in the way in which Luther parted company with Augustine and also Calvin, he agrees with, you'll find a contradiction within Calvin. He says that it is, assurance is of the essence of faith. You have it. But yet he felt some incredible pressure from the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church, these were, this is where they really tightened the screws when coming after the Reformers. Why, this 
grace, this salvation by grace and faith alone, what's going to keep people from misbehaving and, and so on, you know, the Catholic uh, theology? And so, uh, interesting study, won't have time to pursue it, but uh, Calvin ends up in some kind of a contradiction, and it really is connected with uh, Augustine's switch from premillennialism to millennialism, uh, to, to all millennialism, and Calvin as well. We have a passage in Matthew 24, was it verse 13? He who endures to the end will be saved. And making that he who keeps on believing to the end then will finally be saved, which that's not what that verse is teaching. And But if you're an all-millennialist, I can see where you could put that spin on it. But let me give you another quote here. I think um, this one should be in your notes as well. It is. That placing one's trust in Christ for salvation is the basis of assurance. Works are not the means of salvation, nor are they the measure of whether we have salvation. My dear, now deceased professor, Earl Rodmacher. I'd wanted to say a few things about Earl Rodmacher. The, um, it was the, the, the day I got the flu, because <laughs> Rodmacher died um, just about Christ, before Christmas time. He's been here with us in a conference. Some of you remember when he was with us. And uh, he was one of the reasons I went out to Western Conservative Baptist Seminary in 1988. And he wrote and thought and taught with, with incredible clarity on this issue of salvation. He has a book by that title, Salvation, and writes with real clarity on the matter of assurance and eternal security. And uh, I, I respected him uh, highly, and I really appreciated his teaching. Um, one other quote here on this option two, then we'll move on. Here's what Charles Ryrie said, and one of Ryrie's uh, strengths is the way he, can suc- he succinctly states complex and detailed truths. He just puts it out in a sentence. And, and, and Ryrie uh, some who like to, it, this is an impression of mine, that it seems like some who, when they get PhDs or THDs, advanced degrees, that they seem to think that they've kind of got to say things in a way that just leave you scratching your head and you're trying to figure it out because if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're saying something that others can't quite figure out. That's been my impression over about 50 years of working in theological studies and readings and so forth. Charles Ryrie had a Ph.D. and a Ph.D., and his strength was clarity. He said, assurance is the confident realization that one has eternal life. Thank you. (laughs) Assurance is the confident realization that one has eternal life. All right, let's uh, move on down the road. Whoops, let's go back to that one. The believer's assurance of salvation is based. You can see I'm going off option two, and this is my persuasion, and I present it in this, in this way, that the believer's assurance of salvation is based on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, I was told back in the, the sound room that uh, the subpoints on this are not they didn't make it onto the um, PowerPoint, but you've got them in your notes. So I'm, I'm just going to go on, and you just listen carefully because you're not going to get the visual support. You just have to go with the audio. That assurance of salvation comes by believing. Believing. We have assurance at the moment we believe in him. Not when one is baptized or denies oneself or does good works or any of those things, but by believing. I put it in this way. The blood of Christ, I heard this years ago, I don't know who to whom to credit this, it's not original with me, but that the blood of Christ makes the Christians secure. The word of God makes the Christians sure. That's a, to me it's a, Helpful way to to remember this. Uh, There is a quote, I think that this one's in your notes. This is by David J. 
in Gelsma. Um, I was doing some reading. Of, it was an interview in a magazine, and he is um, a, a, a emeritus, a professor. He taught in Reformed. Uh, what's the name of the seminary? It's he's in, in Reformed circles and teaches, taught, and pastored in the Grand Rapids area. But he said this. We receive assurance as a gift through believing in Jesus, just as we receive all our salvation as a gift through believing. That is salvation by grace. Thank you. I think that's, that is clarity. So the believer's assurance of salvation is based on the Word of God. Now, I'm, I, I could put it this way, and Ryrie takes this point and develops it in his book. Little, he has an excellent little book called So Great Salvation. He has a very brief little section on assurance of salvation. <coughs> and he makes the point that there's the objective ground on which we base our assurance, namely, the objective is the promise of Christ. I'll go back to John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he hears my word and believes in me, uh, uh, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's the objective ground, the promise of Christ, other promises as well. But there is the subjective dimension in which the Holy Spirit, who has come into our lives, as he illuminates and as he works in us, it does become a stronger, stronger experience. So there is that subjective degree, like as you go along in the faith. You know, when you're starting out as a young Christian, I don't know if it were with you like this, um, but it was with me when I was a new Christian. And I'm going to come to this a little bit later on as to uh, those early doubts. What if, uh uh-oh, what if I messed up? What if I didn't really mean it? Or what if I didn't pray the right prayer? Or what if it was some kind of, there was a defect there? And say, well, Lord, just in case, will you save me now? (laughs) I trust you. And so there was that. But then as you begin to move along and get traction in your life, you study the scriptures and you see that, wow, I want to read the Bible. I want to be with God's people. I don't want to be out messing around on Sundays. I actually enjoy being there with the assembly. And I'm loving people that I didn't think I could ever love. And I've got some joy that, well, it just it's so minuscule, but it's there. Thank you, Lord. And you see what I... So there is that subjective dimension. But the basis of the assurance is on the promise. That is what creates the assurance. Okay, did you get that? Let's uh, go to the next. The believer's assurance of continuing fellowship with God is experienced by abiding in Christ. I'm indebted to uh, Dr. Rodmacher for the development of this in a very lucid way in his book on salvation. That I'll add this, uh, this point, that assurance of continuing fellowship with God is made possible by fruit bearing. Now, here is where I think some get off track. They want to make this fruit bearing, they want to make that the basis of assurance rather than seeing that it is the basis for this fellowship, not justification. That assurance of continuing fellowship with God is made by, possible by fruit bearing, keeping his commandments, loving others, and so forth. But abiding is keeping his commandments. Abiding is not... I just got to keep hanging on and believing. Keep on hanging on and believing. And then I hope I get, when I get to the end, that I, I will have made it. That's not what abiding is. It's, Ed dealt with this in the sermon that he gave a couple Sundays ago with regard to enjoying our fellowship, enjoying our sustenance from the vine, and thriving and bearing fruit. All right, let's go. Next movement. The believer's assurance of salvation can be hindered. We have a ship on the storm-tossed sea here, if you can see the visual. Let's talk about it can be hindered. Now, I want to walk through some ways in which doubt. That's really what we're, we're having to narrow the subject down 
to overcoming doubt. But let's consider now how doubt can come. Doubt can come due to the failure to remember the exact time of one's conversion. Could it not? I was working through this, and I said, Beth, she couldn't be here tonight. I miss her face. She just always sits. She's listened to thousands of sermons from this old guy, and she still sits there with an interested face. I said, she's in the nursery tonight. <laughs> well, I said, I asked her, Beth, didn't you have some kind of an issue here? Because she was converted at a very early age. I mean, maybe like four or something. And so she just didn't have a real I can remember. I was 14 years of age. <laughs> I can remember the seat where the battle went on, the fight, and, you know, the whole evening. But I said, what did you do when you got to that, as you came along and you couldn't? And, well, she said, I prayed again. <laughs> Just, and I, so I offer this. You can only be saved once, but ask the Lord again. I don't think the Lord will be offended. What are you doing asking me again? <laughs> that uh, So I don't think that violates anything. And it's, it's a reality if, if that's the case. I don't know if there, anyone would be here that way this evening. But with um, someone who's believed very, very early in life and it's the, the moment, the time. But that's not what assurance rests upon is the ability to remember. It's the promise of Christ. Secondly, doubt, got ahead of myself there, didn't I? Doubt as to confusion about the procedure. Did I pray the proper prayer? Um, Now you say, well, it's not a prayer that saves you. You There's there's kind of a kerfuffle that goes on here with some some, um, Calvinists get on to others and say, what are you talking about? You're not saved by a prayer? Well, my answer to that is, don't you ask to be saved? I mean, just, you just wait and, wow, I didn't do anything and I'm saved. Hey, what is, just read through the Gospel of John. <laughs> don't make this too complicated. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 16, 31. Believe and you will be saved. Well, so it's not the method that saves us, but it's faith in Christ. Thirdly. Doubt because of not believing in eternal security. So if you don't get this truth clear and get it under your belt, I could see where you're going to be on a bit of a roller coaster and a lot of doubt. I would say revisit the promises of God. Go back and work in Romans. Go through Romans 8.30. Memorize Romans 8.35 through 39, among other things, and revisit the gospel. Doubt that more must be done other than simply believe. Is there something else? It just seems too easy. I mean, some have even attached that adjective to believe easy. But well, now wait a minute. I think I know what I know what uh, doctrinal or what kind of behavior you're trying to get after and deal with. But after all, what did you do? You look to the Lord. Lord, I receive your gift. I receive it. I don't have to jump through hoops. I, 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 I don't have to uh, go through some procedure over time. Um, so simply believe. For by grace are you saved through faith in that, not yourselves. It's the gift of works, not of works. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Doubt as to the reality of trust, um, related issue. Um, I trusted the Lord, is, what is, but did it happen? Rehearse the gospel message. What saves us? Is it some subjective quality that I exuded at the moment? Or did God save me? Isn't he? he saves me. He looks comes to him. I'll give you an illustration a little later on of this. Or doubt because of unconfessed sin and guilt. Sin does not cause the believer to lose his salvation. No believer is sinless. We have to deal with sin. Quite frankly, I think that um, the problem of uh, 
that, that what some are attempting to do by wanting to place assurance of salvation and rest it upon a subjective observation or perception of fruits in the life work slash fruit. Some want to, they say it's not works, it's fruit. But, uh, and so what, they, what they're after here at this point or what they fail to acknowledge is, is there, is there such a thing as a disobedient Christian? Isn't there? And there has been this, um, this argument that's gone on, rather it's gone on for a long time, but especially in the last 40 years, over the carnal Christian. And you look in 1 Corinthians, and Paul says, you're carnal. So then you wonder, well, some say there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, but Paul said the Corinthians were carnal, so I, I, I know what they're going after. There is a view that was presented in a very popular track. Well, it was, it was put out by Bill Bright in Campus Crusade. And uh, the idea was is that you could be, you could come to Christ, but you could sort of maybe get a, you could get to heaven on a, you could go tourist and not first class, if you will. And you just could live on out your life as a carnal Christian, and that was your, you didn't need to worry about. So that created a great uh, a bit of debate, has, still does. But... Um, Let's just put it through. Can Christians be disobedient? Can Christians be disobedient for seasons, protracted seasons? I think so. And there is, there is something to be said to that, but that's another issue. How, uh, what does one do? What are the consequences and so forth? Now, there's another one that I don't have on the, in the PowerPoint, but another doubt. Doubt because of a super-sensitive conscience. That I know in counseling and pastoring over the years that there are, you know this, that you, you, you have enough children, because <laughs> in one child, they can, they can do something and just do it cold-blooded, and it doesn't bother them. <laughs> the next one, you just, you just look at them with a little bit of a stern look, and they go, <laughs> they just fall, they melt and go to pieces. And, you know, we're just, we're all wired differently, and some of, some of us, you just barely, this is not an argument for having a super sensitive conscience or not. You just, what it is, you just have to sanctify it in, by God's grace. But there are those who do get, a lot of things can just throw them off track. And they keep wanting to visit things, sins, perceived sins. They go in and do their introspective if they have that tendency, if they're melancholic. You get a super sensitive conscience and compound that with a melancholic disposition, you know, where you tend to look upon the dark side of things and you're always your introspection. And so you go in and you do this MRI on your sinful nature. And you, boy, when you look in long enough, it is going to be quite despairing. So if you have that bent, and there are Christians who do, I would say the response there, if you're in a place to help, if you're this kind of person, it requires patience, sensitivity, not condemnation. You see, if if your conscience doesn't go that way, you can be impatient with a super saint. Come on, get with it. What's the problem? And it's a little bit related to the issue that Paul brings up in Romans, where, you know, the weak conscience, strong conscience, believer, but... Indirectly related. Okay, I could get it back on the main road. I say, what does the gospel say? That's what I would say to the super sensitive conscience. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the truth. Go back to the word. Go back to it as often as you have to. Let's consider this. Remaining questions. Got a lot of these. Is it biblical to claim security in Christ but not assurance? Uh, This one comes across like this. Yes, you can have this security justification by faith alone. But then you say you've got to persevere to the end. And I could give you a theologian who says it this way. And I heard him say it. And you want to, at first you want to give them the poetic license that they're just talking in paradoxical language. But to me it's contradiction. That you can have this, you can have this security in Christ but yet, if you deny the Lord at some point in the future, that will show that you were never a Christian. I, uh, so, um, 
I'd, I'd say that's not, that's not a paradox. That's just, it's a contradiction. And I think I know where that, if you will allow me, I think I know where that theological thought comes from. And you can find it as far back as Augustine. You can find it in Calvin because he contradicts himself in this point because he's, all right, let's go on. I don't want to lose you on those points, but, uh, well, there's that statement. All right. Is it possible to have false assurance? We may think that we have faith when, in fact, we have no faith. Now, there are some theological circles, some belief systems where much is made of this. Here, um, yeah, I, this interview, I've debated whether to read it to you or not, but I think I will. It's Because uh, this is written by someone who, who pastored and taught in circles where the, the, the ideas you distinguish, as, as Augustine did, Distinguished between saying that you can be regenerate, but not one of the elect. And you can have this spurious faith and go right along, regenerate, spurious faith. You think you believed, but then find out at the end that you were not one of the elect. Uh, if that makes your head swim, listen to this paragraph. Here's a man who pastored and, te- and is pastored and taught in a in theological environment uh, like that. And he says... Um, Sure, I've got it. Um, he traces this to, yeah, here it is. He's, it's an interview, so he's responding to a question. He says, yes, for example, I, I have a large contingent of relatives who are, in fact, believing people and godly in their lives. Some have never missed a church service in 80 years. Nevertheless, under the influence of this Puritan theology, okay, that brings up another issue. The Puritans really didn't help us on this subject of assurance. And I mean, listen, I can tell you things that would really blow your hat in the creek when you get into some of the Puritans like Brooks, Thomas Brooks, and you've got this long list of criteria to determine so whether you can ever get assurance. And so you're, well, let me go on back to this, uh, the account here. You've got to get through this. All right, he said, nevertheless, under the influence of this Puritan theology, they have lived all their lives doubting their salvation. And because they lack assurance, they never dare to take the Lord's Supper. I have sat with them on their deathbeds and watched as they died in terror, afraid of being damned. And after they were laid in the casket, their relatives were in terrible distress and despair over their loved ones. I find that doubt to be wicked. So it is not just a theological matter for me, but a very practical matter. That's a very interesting interview. Okay, uh, next. Is it is the only way to have assurance through the examination of good works in one's life? I repeat in this answer that. The ground of assurance, by the way, I love this slide. Did I get back and get that? Uh, uh, okay, I almost let that get by. No, let's get it in here. All right, I have somebody in my graphics department who found this slide. and I, it, it, On his uh, uniform is Torrance. That's from the clip from the movie Unbroken. And, you know, where he's getting, he, he just breaks the national record for high schoolers in the mile and, was unbroken, the movie, Louis Zephyr. Okay. All right. Let's get on. I've distracted you. Uh, let's uh, answer. The ground of assurance is in Christ, not in fruit. I have a quote here. This is good. David Anderson from his book, Free Grace That's Soteriology. Excellent book. If a person ever looks to his persevering fruit as the ultimate ground of assurance, he can never have assurance. You're always, you are always looking, second-guessing yourself. All right, next. Is the believer, if the believer is secure, why the warnings and contingent promises? Well, the answer is to do what? 
to warn Christians of the danger of disobedience. That's the thrust in the epistles. They are alarms about the possibility of the forfeiture of eternal rewards and of, and of learning at the judgment seat of Christ that our lives have been wasted to be ashamed. This is an important, important area to consider. There's the consequences and the warnings through Scripture. This is my understanding of the book of Hebrews. I know some want to put those warnings in Hebrews. Oh, they're to non-Christians. I mean, no, they're to believers. Look what you've got to lose as a believer. Interestingly, I can't keep chasing these rabbit trails, but the Arminians saw something, see something there. You know, Arminians believe you can't, you don't believe in eternal security. Ironically, the Arminians um, believe many that you can have assurance, but you can't have security. So you, while you are, secu- you are assured, you may not be able to keep it. Uh, that's that's uh, in some ways they sound like some of these some Calvinists who think you've got to endure to the end, and then you read the Arminian. Believe me, I read this. I have a book by uh, uh, Shank. Oh, it's his first name. He he. Um, but he sets forth the Arminian position, and you read what he says about enduring to the end. You've got to keep on persevering. And then you read some others who say they're Calvinists, and they talk the same way. <laughs> it's like they meet at the same point. All right. Um, will not teaching, let's get along here. Will not the, the teaching that one can have assurance of their salvation lead to permissive behavior? Is this kind of lurks in the background? And pastorally, but I would say it's the exact opposite is true. That when we are sure of our standing before God, it will result in love, joy, gratitude, obedience. My friend Doug McIntosh, he and I have talked about these things. And he has said this. He's written well on this. He said, there are a thousand things that lead to permissive behavior. But millions of those who believe in biblical assurance do not indulge in it. I mean, if it were true that if you believe that you have the promise of Christ, that you have um, assurance, you have the gift of eternal life from the moment that you believe, then is that going to result in your living as a uh, complete uh, in disregard for the commandments of Christ? Well, I, this is purely anecdotal, but I'll tell you this. It was not the effect on me. <laughs> I mean, I believed in assurance from day one. Thank God for teachers that I had and looking in the scriptures and seeing what First John taught. That, uh, wow. But, and also, you can find plenty of people on, in both views with plenty of disobedient people out there who, so it's, uh, keep that in mind. So, so does simply trusting in Christ and being insured of eternal salvation remove all the incentives for godly living? You know what you want to keep in mind? If you're accused of trying people, of telling people if, they, if it's faith alone and you can have assurance, you're not in bad company. You know who was accused of this? And he was accused of leading people into license. Paul was. And you read him in Romans 6. And Paul had, oh, there were those who just followed on Paul's heels, said, oh, he's this gospel of grace and faith alone. You do that, you'll just be living like the devil. And then they wanted to bring the law in, keep people in tow. Well, is it possible to have a false assurance? This is, well, did I skip that one? Um, okay, I, I guess I didn't put that one in. I, this, I've added this since I put these up. Is it possible to have a false assurance? I'd say yes. If you put your trust in anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ, you're deceiving yourself. The Matthew, there'll be those who say, Lord, Lord. Well, they have not put their trust in Christ. They've put it elsewhere. Now, I do have a string of, um, and I, I've got to kind of bring this to a conclusion here. Um, I, I, I know I knew I wouldn't have time to do it. There are a lot of verses that become the uh, 
uh, interpretive uh, uh, questions like the Second uh, Peter 1.10, make your, uh, your election calling sure. The, the point there, I'll just say this much about that passage. That's talking about confirming it before the, uh, for other people. That's not giving yourself assurance. That is showing other people that you've come to know Christ and that uh, the believer's calling an election is confirmed in the eyes of others by our godly life. I would like to discuss 2 Corinthians 13.5. That's a passage so often brought up. Examine yourself. Some have just established this whole teaching that you can't, you can't have assurance unless you, you see this fruit along the way, and, and you've got to keep coming back to seeing fruit. And if there's a lapse, you've got to come back to it. And so this examination... I would challenge you to look in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 more closely and see that Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, and he assumes they're believers. He's not challenging their faith, but he is telling them to practice what you preach in the faith. There is much, there's exegetical work to go through that I think demonstrates that. But I think we've got everything, uh, everything covered here. Let's see. All right, that's Second Peter, one ten. All right, we can get that. And yeah, I don't. Yeah, you wouldn't need need this. It's referring to living out our Christian convictions and beliefs. But some have attempted to establish a um, doubt as some sort of healthy thing um, that we can't shouldn't be living with assurance. And I. I obviously disagree with that. But people I respect take that view. How should we then live? Well, I didn't put that in there, but I've got it in front of me, so I'll just say how I would put it. We're not to look to ourselves and our works for assurance. We're to look to Christ and God's faithfulness for the assurance of our salvation. I'll give you one I've got examples and such, but I've cut to the chase. I'll give you one example. That John 3, and as Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish in, in John 3:16, for God so loved the world, and so on. You know, when all those people were getting bitten by those poisonous snakes in the wilderness, and then Moses put up that... Uh, was a bronze serpent. And what did you have to do? Look and live. That's all. Did you have to look and then were you on probation? <laughs> no. You looked and instantly you were healed. Now, you say, how is that relevant? It is completely irrelevant because that's the point that he goes on to make. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So look and live. I could tell you about the thief on the cross. I think that certainly is valid here. Simply look for it and believe. And God then gives the testimony that we have it by his word, his promise. I found this little, it's not a syllogism, but it, 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 it goes after the logic of those who want to place assurance on this subjective perception that one is asked to have over time. And I found this to be helpful, and it was put this way. I would like to know I have standing with God. Two, I can't until I have proven my faithfulness to him over time. Three, the possibility exists that I might fail morally in the future. Four, if I do, that will prove that I never was a believer to begin with. Five, therefore, the most I can say is that so far, I haven't done anything to show that I'm not a believer. That is not, in my judgment, where the scriptures take us on this. When Paul said, I know whom I have believed and able to persuade it. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto him. Until that day. All right, we did get through a few minutes over, but uh, this is a, there are a lot of uh, truths that come in on this, and and and.
had to leave some things out and even an illustration or two that I thought might be helpful. But I want to see if you have questions. Uh, any questions? Yes, J.K. Um, birth. Yes. So, in my little mind, it seems like the choices of the term relationship for dealing with salvation and fellowship for dealing with with the continuing law seem to answer they seem to answer all these questions sort of to me. I wonder is that just way oversimplistic? Well, the the assurance issue that I think Christians where we resolve it. For is you know when I I've, I've sinned I've um, maybe I think I matter of fact I left that out that brings up something that I remember writing in my notes that uh, oh here it is yeah here um, those who struggle with doubt about their salvation and I put that in this realm of of uh, fellowship could bitterness and hatred toward they have a, toward a believer. So they are going to be struggling. Well, what are they struggling with? It's their fellowship with the Lord that's, that's been uh, affected. That closeness to him. Uh, infidelity. Walking in deliberate sin. So the disobedient Christian then gets into doubt, but it's doubt with regard to fellowship. Yes, you're a child, but, you know, it's the, the guilty child. It's the one who's been disobedient. And so, you think, yes, Rob? You mentioned 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point prior to that, verse 9, it talks about uh, forgiving one another because yeah. we have uh, failed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, we do certain things, uh, there's qualities that we can expect to add that if we lack these qualities, we'll blind ourselves by them. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It creates a serious disorientation. And so doubt comes in and by that uh, um, as to one's, one's spiritual condition. But the question is, that, okay, deal with it. Deal with it. But Christians can really mess things up royally. That's the point he's making in that passage. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the point you were talking about, that person who became a Christian, showed through, you know, was passionate and then fell away, let's say, or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and now are antagonistic to Christ. I was thinking of that. Um, I do too. How do you, how does all that fit? You know, we, we kind of, it's easy to say, oh, they, maybe they just fell away. Well, no, James doesn't say that. Uh, no, no, that's misreading of James, is that uh, we're not saved by works. We're sanctified by works, but we're not saved by works. And that's where some go. Um, by the way, there's a very interesting discussion on this. Of, uh, faith is dead, and somebody brought up fact. How can faith be dead? That means you had it, and then you lost it? Is that what he's saying in James? But back to your main point, that... Um, we're not saved by our works. That's, I think that's a, a, a weakness of saying that we have to look for our assurance in our works. I'm not saved by my works. I'm sanctified by my works. I mean, that's, that's part of it. All right, but your question is, what about that kind of person? And I would say that uh, you, you certainly have to leave an ultimate judgment in the hands of God on this. Look, what you're describing, I could tell you some very personal and painful stories too. My father. 
My father went to missionary training school and was going to be a missionary in Africa the rest of his life. I'm not saying because you make a pledge to be a missionary and don't go that, that there were other things that happened, alcohol and World War II and, well, just a big... And I've got other people. And, you know, you pastor 50, 60 years, you're going to see this kind of story, aren't you? And just in your own personal life, you don't have to be a pastor. And I would say that it could be, is it, is it possible for someone to think that they would have believed, but they never put their trust in Christ? Remember, said the false assurance is that you placed it in something other than in Christ. And it's possible. And of course, the Judas factor is often brought up. I think it's overplayed quite often just because somebody it's in a disobedient, protracted period. So, oh, it's a Judas. But it may be a Christian who is in a protracted period of disobedience and that uh, what they need to do is repent, and they're sent unto death. There is a hardening of heart. There is a loss of reward. There is a wasted life, and those issues can enter in. So the way I would do it and the way I approach it at funerals is very delicately that if a person has lived a life that's been contrary to a profession they made, it's not my position to stand and I don't hand out the tickets. God knows their heart. Could it be that they trusted Christ and that they lived in a protracted period of disobedience and wasted their life and lose rewards? Yes. Is it possible that they never trusted Christ? Who knows what they were trusting? And that they... They died self-deceived and lost. That's possible. That's agonizing, isn't it? And especially as you know, loved ones. And but it, it's a warning. It's uh, so there are warnings to believers and there are warnings to those who think they're believers, like in Matthew seven. I respect both of those. Have to. Yes. Depends on what we do about the sins that we commit. The First John one nine is for if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if we live in rebellion, we don't. If I if I nurture, say, well, hey, next Sunday night, overcoming resentful resentful attitude, live with a sin, live with. Um, um, conditions of, of disobedience that are displeasing, will I lose reward? First Corinthians says that it is possible to be saved by the skin of your teeth, so as by fire. You get to heaven, and you have nothing but Christ's righteousness placing you and standing before him to receive him. But your capacity in eternity to bring glory to God is greatly, seriously diminished, and not like that which for the person who's lived faithfully and honored God and has borne much fruit. So there is that distinction. I find that there is a woeful lack of attention to this matter of rewards and the judgment seat of Christ and the consequences. Many Christians, therefore, aren't exposed to it. It's either or. It's either you are totally committed You've given up everything. You deny yourself, da-da, 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 and then there is, then the rest are not saved. That doesn't answer all the biblical data in my judgment. But to answer your question is that this is to call a call to us to deal with sin, confess it, forsake it, love that God's love is so over, my love for God is so overpowering that I want to deal with it. And if I harden my heart and I don't, if I keep on with that sin and hold on to it and nurture it and nourish it, then I'm losing. I'm wasting things. Gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hair, stubble. Which will it be? And First John tells us in John, what First John two twenty eight that there will be there will be shame. There will be shame. And uh, sobering. Sobering. But it could could be no more grief. 
I don't doubt that that, that would enter in. To stand before suddenly, I stand before the Lord, and here are those things that I, oh, why, why? And I'm, I've lost something. It goes up in smoke. What I thought, oh, okay, let me get it. 7.30, but any other questions? These are good questions. I can tell you're interested. Yes? I, that's the only thing I can say. He's saying that he rests through the ground of assurance upon the, the, uh, the, the perception and observation of fruit. Is that upon which I base my assurance? And... Um, that seems to be what I've read of him. That is his. That's his gold standard on assurance, namely um, observation of fruit. Is he right about subjective and yeah. Oh, well, if if he's saying that assurance rests upon my subjective observation of fruit, if that is, I create my assurance by my own per- perception of where I am. I would disagree. That's not, my assurance is not based on my perception. It's not based on me. That's what Luther said. It's outside of me. It's what faith, when I receive the gift of eternal life, that's it. I thank you, Lord. But, uh, anyway, but, um, okay, let's go. Thank you, O God, for your keeping power. And Lord, We're humbled by this extraordinary, extraordinary, wonderful experience of your grace to us. Keep us faithful, Lord. And I pray that if there's one here tonight, he, she, some some way in which we're living, thinking that it's dishonoring to you, and we just won't deal with it. Oh, God, may that happen tonight to confess. Come clean. And receive your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.